Hey guys, welcome back to Positive Impact with Andrew Schultz, episode number 36. Today I have a very special guest and a dear friend of mine who just wrote a new book called The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. My guest is Miles McPherson, Pastor Miles McPherson. He's the senior pastor of the Rock Church and Academy in San Diego, California. He attended the University of New Haven and was the university's first football player to be drafted into the NFL. After four years in the NFL with the San Diego Chargers, he pursued full-time vocational ministry and graduated from Azusa Pacific University's School of Theology with a Master of Divinity in 1991. He founded the Rock Church in 2000, which has grown to become one of the largest churches in America with more than 20,000 weekly attendees in person and online. The church has five campuses throughout San Diego County and more than 120 volunteer-led outreach ministries that donate the equivalent of over $5 million worth of volunteer services every year. Pastor Miles and his wife Debbie have three children and reside in San Diego. And in this interview, Pastor Miles and I talk about a wide range of topics. We start off uh, in his childhood where he grew up in a black neighborhood, going to a white school, and that raci racially divided nation that he speaks about in his book about how he saw it firsthand growing up. Um, and we talk about his upbringing. We talk about him playing football in college, getting drafted by the Rams getting cut by the Rams, playing for the Chargers. We talk about his um, his miracle that happened on April 12th, 1984, when he gave up doing drugs, cocaine, and marijuana. And he found God, uh, thanks to some teammates. And he's been sober ever since 1984. And we talk about that. Um and then how he started the Rock Church in the year 2000. And then we talk about the book, Inside and Out, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation, which I read the book twice. Um, I love the book because it talks about solutions um, instead of pointing fingers with what's wrong with the world and our country and everything that's going on. Solutions to make the world a better place, to be the change that we want to see in the world. And we get into the book and... Um, Without further ado, guys, I'm going to just leave it at that. I'm going to turn it over to the interview. Let us know what you think. I will put all of Pastor Miles' contact information in the show notes. And uh, without further ado, here is Pastor Miles McPherson. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Positive Impact. I'm your host, Andrew Schultz. Episode number 36. I have a very, very dear friend and special guest on with me today. Pastor Miles McPherson. Pastor Miles, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Pastor Miles just wrote uh, a book, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. I've read the book twice. I love it. It's important. Um, we're going to get into the book here uh, shortly, but Pastor Miles, where I want to start is I know you're uniquely qualified to be talking about the things that we talk about this in, in the book and how you grew up black neighborhood, white school, walk us through where it all started because it gives context for the people reading the book, um, why you're uniquely qualified. Right. But, uh, well, thanks for having me. And, um, my grandparents are like the United Nations. I have two black grandfathers, one white grandmother and one half Chinese 
black grandmother. And they're all from Jamaica, West Indies. Um, and so I have tan, light tan, brown skin. So people are always trying to figure out what am I? You know, my Puerto Rican, am I light skin, black, mixed, whatever. And I grew up in a black neighborhood um, and went to school for the first eight years of my life in a white neighborhood. And I got called names in a white neighborhood because I wasn't white. And it was in the six, you know, I grew, I was born in 60. So it started out in 65, 66. I started going to school. And, and then I would get harassed in the white neighborhood because I wasn't white, but then I would get harassed in the black neighborhood because I wasn't black enough mm-hmm. to some. And so I, I a lot often felt like I was in the middle and kind of an outsider. And then I would go to my house and then I have, you know, my, my parents and grandparents, all different kinds of shades. Um, and, but then I would play football and on the football team, we had white, black, mostly white and black. And we all got along great because we had one cause and one enemy was the other team and mm-hmm. one cause was the win. And so, you know, at times I was I was always in this diverse environment and at times the, the diverse environment worked against me and sometimes it worked for me. And so I grew up having to navigate that all the time. And when I went to high school, the white neighborhood that I used to go to school in and the black neighborhood I lived in came together and we all got along great mm-hmm. by that time. But when I was, you know, younger before that, first through eighth grade, I was I, I was kind of an outsider everywhere I went. Mm-hmm. So, but you found on the, on the sports field on the on your football team, you guys were all one. We were one, and I was good, so that helped. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, we were one, and and on our on sports teams, you know, there were guys there from very tough environments. We had one kid; he didn't have any parents. Mm-hmm. You know, he's 10, 11 years old and both his parents are dead. Mm. And so he was, um, you know, his brother was kind of raising him and, and his aunt, but he really didn't have any um, uh, supervision. Mm. And so we would give, take him to practice, take him back to and from practice, feed him. And he became, you know, a very, very, uh, um, he touched a very tender spot, not only in my heart, but my dad. Mm. And my dad, even up until the day my, you know, when my dad was in his seventies, would say that kid's name and almost get teared up because he said mm-hmm. that kid never had a chance. But that kid was like a brother to me. But to some of the white kids in the neighborhood, they would see him as a as a thug. Mm-hmm. And um, but he, you know, he had such a, a disadvantaged life to this day. And so, but those guys were on my team, and those guys were like brothers to me. And, um. Uh, and had a very special place in my heart. And so I grew up knowing kids on both, all sides of the, all the tracks mm-hmm. and thinking, man, we, you know, we, we just don't know each other because that guy's a good guy and that guy's a good guy, but they don't like each other or, they, or they're suspicious of each other. And there's so often, even now, people listening to this, you see people on television or in neighborhoods you drive past and you have assumptions about them. I guarantee you they're wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 I shouldn't say I guarantee you the wrong. I guarantee you there's so much amazing qualities about people that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the people that have done horrible things, you know, um, the horrible, horrible things, a horrible thing. But sometimes there's reasons behind it that are real and it doesn't excuse the behavior, but it explains it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I've been to so many prisons and jails and talked to so many people black, white, Hispanic, you know, white supremacists, black, this Mexican, whatever. And people are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. You know, they're pretty much the same. So, 
sports, that was something you excelled at. You played football at the University of New Haven. Yep, Division three school, yep. very small, 2,500 kids. You know, it's like a high school. <laughs> Drafted by the Rams, 1982. 1982. Yeah. Got cut. Got cut, which means I got fired, which means I didn't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> but you got picked up by somebody else. Yeah, San Diego Chargers. Uh, that year, in 1982, there was a strike. So I got, I there were two games in the beginning of the year. I was cut already. And then there were seven weeks or so where there was no football. So I was in Anaheim living in a hotel, just crying and working out two or three times a day, hoping something would happen. The strike ended and I got signed by the Chargers. You played for four years, right? Yep. Okay. And something happened, you know, you've been very uh, transparent about the first four years playing for the Chargers, your social life. Um, But on April 12th, 1984, something happened. Uh, can you tell the audience what happened? Yeah, the first two years I was using cocaine, smoking weed. I had been smoking weed since high school, you know, breaking up with my girlfriend back and forth and chasing women and stuff. So those first two years were wild. And in 1984, uh, I'd been up all night doing cocaine and I just said, I'm done. And um, I had done cocaine in my first two years of the league. Mm. And I just said, you know, I'm going to give my life to Jesus because there were guys on my team who were Christians and they were sharing their faith with me on the plane and in the locker room. And 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 I just recommitted my life to Jesus on April 12th, 1984. Stopped doing cocaine that day. Stopped mm-hmm. smoking marijuana that day. Um, got back with my girlfriend that day and we've been together since. What's ironic, on that day, I called my drug dealer seven times. And... Um, and so today is, uh, we're, we're in 2019. So this was uh, 1984, 35 years ago. Is that correct? So 35 yeah. years yeah. ago, I called my drug dealer seven times. He never picked up the phone. There was no, you know, machines or, you know, uh, you know, voicemail. We didn't have that. Yeah. We, we didn't have, and uh, we had a machine, but he didn't have it. And it was a rotary phone for all you who are listening. Oh, yeah. Don't even know what a rotary phone is. But it's where you dial with your finger and you turn something. <laughs> no text message. Yeah, no, no, there was no such thing as no one that that word text didn't, wasn't created yet. And um, uh, he never picked up. Well, ironically, ironically, two days ago, I'm sorry, three days ago, he called me. And uh, the same drug dealer, he goes to my church. Holy smokes. <laughs> So I tell you what, I go back maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. eight years ago, I, we were having a, a Thanksgiving bar, uh, Thanksgiving lunch for our staff. And he was serving food in the lobby of our church. And I said, is that you? He says, I've been going to church here seven years. That was five, six, seven years ago. So he's been in our church for, for a long time. And so um, he's now walking with God too. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah, it's I did amazing not story. know that. Yeah. So anyway, so I got I stopped doing cocaine that day. If he would have picked up the phone, I don't know where I'd be. I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I might not be sitting here. So miracle. And I, I love talking about that because I've been sober four and a half years and I think we're all miracles as we get sober and you know, don't touch it again and find this new purpose. And um so thank you for sharing that part. Mm-hmm. Um and you started a Bible study, right? Yeah. People with from nine nationalities. Yeah, we had a Bible study in my house uh, in Rancho Penasquitas, teenagers, all teenagers, high school, and nine nationalities. Started with Filipino kids. My next door neighbor were a couple of Filipino kids. And and one of those kids still goes to the church. She's 40-something years old now, and she still goes to the church. 
very good, very, very good close friend of us. Uh, she was 14 when I met her. Um, and so we had nine nationalities and that grew into me being a youth pastor, which led to me being a senior pastor. Got it. And then you started the rock in 2000, 2000 San Diego state Montezuma hall. Uh, we were there, uh, for five years. Did you have any idea when you were growing up that you wanted to be doing what you're doing today? No, when I, when I was growing up, I wanted to play football. I didn't see past that. Uh, when I became a Christian and started going to a church, I was like, yeah, maybe I could do this, you know, <clears throat> but not really. No, the answer is got, no. <laughs> got, it. got it. All right. So now I want to get into the book. So the third option, hope for a racially divided nation. What inspired you, Pastor Miles, to write this book? You know, three or four years ago, when I started to think about writing that book, our country was divided. I never knew it would get this bad. Mm. And um, everything, things kept happening in culture. And I was like, we need a book now. And then something worse would happen. We need a book now. And, mm. and But I, 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 Martin Luther King was killed when I was eight. And I remember feeling this is unfair. And I remember thinking, what do we do? Mm. So all my life I've had this burden of saying something that was helpful because I would see people arguing on TV and people were mad and, and people were getting done wrong. Blacks were getting done wrong. My family was getting done wrong. And, and I said, someone's got to do something. Mm. So I had an opportunity to write a book proposal and one of the chapters was going to be on racism. So I wrote that chapter as a sample mm. and they said, and while I was writing it, I was like, man, I would want to write a whole book about this. And they came back and said, we don't want you to write a book about what you were going to write about. Can you write one on racism? Mm. And I said, yes. Now, ironically, I started writing the book and really wasn't going well. Uh, my content wasn't really that great. I didn't have as much information that I thought I would need to write a good book. And then I started meeting a few people, uh, Dr. Stephen Jones, Dr. Zachary Green, um, that started um, helping me understand some things that I never heard of. And that changed the whole course of this book. And I'm eternally grateful that Denise Jones was also instrumental in helping me write this book. Um, and so those people and other people help me think through the issue to write it in a way that I wanted to write it, which was to give people tools mm -hmm. for solutions. Cause I, I, you know, it's not about who's right. It's about how can we all come together? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this to give people tools on how to honor. And I think I want to say something real quick. I've read the book twice. Um, <laughs> and what I love about the book is especially nowadays with everything going on there, it's getting, it's getting, where the pointing the fingers, the cursing people just on social media, I, I have to turn it off sometimes. But what I love about the book is it's a solution. You're mm -hmm. talking about the solution. You're one of the few people talking about the solution. And this is a time when we all need a solution. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to us about the third option. What is the third option? I guess reverse. What are the first two options? Yeah, the first two options is it's us versus them. My opinion against yours. So option number one is I am... I'm on the right. Option number two is I'm on the left. Option number one, I follow Fox. Mm. Option number two, I follow CNN. <laughs> option number one, I'm a Republican. And option number two, I'm a Democrat. It's how we want to look at it. Option number one is I'm against the police. Option number two is I'm for the police. Mm. I'm against the immigrants. I'm for the immigrants. And, and, and so 
you're always forced to pick a side. And once you pick a side, then you're forced to agree with everything on that side. And you're also forced to never agree with the other side because then you're a sellout. Mm-hmm. And so you're trapped. And then you start to even agree with stuff that doesn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. But it's, you have to because that's your side. Mm-hmm. The third option is that we honor what we have in common. And people are more similar than different. We are 99.5% genetically identical. Um, I was in a prison um, talking to a white supremacist. And it wasn't necessarily a friendly conversation. But we were standing there face to face. And he had no shirt on. And you know we were 99.5% genetically identical. Yet he was told I'm inferior to him. Mm. He's lied to him. That doesn't, you know, doesn't, I'm not mad at him. He was, he just got bad information. Yeah. But if he and I were able to sit down and talk about what, what we have in common, mm. we have the same red blood. We want to have family. If we want to sleep at night, we want to have a good meal, raise our kids. Uh, we love food. I, I, we love sleep. I'm sure we can come up with a thousand things that we agree on. Mm. And if we all focused on that um, and focused on the things that um, that we all share, mm. then our differences would actually be a benefit, mm. you know, the things we can learn from. Because mm. I can learn, we all can learn from the differences we have instead of using them as reasons to, uh, to be divided. Mm. And on page eight, early in the book, to your point, you say celebrities aren't the only ones who are shocked by their DNA results. A few years ago, a white supremacist leader named Craig Cobb agreed to take a DNA test. When the results of his test were revealed on a nationally syndicated talk show, they indicated he was 14% sub-Saharan African. In, in other words, the brother was part black. <laughs> yeah, so if you do your, your DNA, yeah, you do, if you do your DNA in, in Africa, is divided like in two chunks. Some people say three. So what is above and what is below the Saharan desert? And sub-Saharan Africa is Black Africa. So mm. it's Nigeria, it's, it's Kenya, it's, it's, it's uh, and uh, and Uganda, etc. And then you have South Africa at the very bottom. But when you do your DNA, if you see sub-Saharan Africa, and that's Black, and for the most part, basically, and and so he was fourteen percent Black. You know, very few people are all one thing. Mm. We're all mixed. Mm-hmm. Some people you could just see it more. And so, um, you know, if you trace everybody back, it goes back to just two people, which, by the way, they've also done studies. I think it was Johnson Geographic said everybody goes back to one couple, uh, Adam and Eve. But that's a whole nother story. But that's but that's scientifically proven. So we're all so united and so intertwined um, that and, and we have this notion that we're different. So this book is designed. How do we how do we learn to. Um, deprogram our brains to focus on the things that are different mm-hmm. and, and and the things that we even create, the differences that we even create that don't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this perception that those people are lazy and those people are dumb and those people are, and, and it's not even true. It's just ignorance. And you said the word honor. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about is on page 25 and 42, two pages, um, 15 times you mentioned the word honor honorable honoring. And so um, my question to you, obviously this is an important part of the book. Why is it so important? The book's all about how can we honor what we have in common? Honor is to place value on something. Mm -hmm. If you go to a barbecue and you know, you're not going to bring out your Thanksgiving plates, you're going to bring out paper plates. Mm -hmm. 
right? But when you have a, 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 a Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, you want to bring out your nice place because you mm-hmm. want to place value. This is a special day. Um, how do I look at you and um, and place value on your desire to be a dad mm-hmm. or your desire to be a son or your desire to have purpose? How do I place value on it? And if I, if I focus on that, I'm lifting you up. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm acknowledging that you have things important in your life that I should respect versus looking down on you and finding reasons to look down on you. So and if and if and if I and then if I realize that what I'm honoring in you, I also honor myself. I'm glad you brought that up because it's honoring others is one part, but then honoring ourselves. Correct. And, and, and acknowledging that what I'm honoring in you, I also honor myself. When you, know, you look at these people crossing the border and, 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 and as soon as you say that, people think politics. Try not to think politics right now. Just try to think this. Mm-hmm. You're a father. Just, just think you're a father and you have a five-year-old daughter that you don't want to get raped by the gang. And you are willing to leave your house and walk for days to protect your daughter. Just think about that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we have to have laws, and I can talk about that in a minute as well. But I'm just talking about being a dad. That's all I'm talking about is being a dad. Mm-hmm. And so do we put do we put um, my uh, – what comes first is just me being – at least being able to give dignity to that dad in my heart, in my heart, right, um, and pray for that dad and have compassion for that dad. Um, and however I execute a law, which we're even confused with what those laws should be, which mm-hmm. is our fault. Mm-hmm. I need to have comp- that. I need to acknowledge that if I was that guy and I had to leave my house, I un- now understand the pain, the fear that person's in. And so I think, you know, this, this is really about looking at people as people and saying, man, if, if I had to do that, how scared would I be? How terrified would I be to send my daughter who's 16 on a bus to another country because I don't want her to become a prostitute because the, gang, the gangs are going to come get her? What would that, how would that rip my heart out? And how would I want the people who receive her to, to take care of her? Mm-hmm. And so I think we have, to, we have to lead with that compassion and let that be our driving force. Um, how, and, and what that results in, I don't know. But I, mm-hmm. but I think once we abandon that then anything's possible once you you know one of the things i talk about is putting labels on people and whatever label you put on someone you can't treat them above that label so if i say you're ugly Mm -hmm. i will never see you as cute Mm -hmm. if i say you're dumb i will never see you as smart Mm -hmm. so if i say you're a criminal i will never see you as anybody i need to respect so the label i give you is so important and when we give people labels that are less than neighbor, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. If I dehumanize you and give you a label less than for who really you are, you're a human being. I can never take that away from you. But if I give you a label that dehumanizes you, shame on me mm-hmm. because I just gave you something that's not true. Mm-hmm. And, and a matter of fact, it dehumanizes me to give you that label. Mm-hmm. And so if we can look at people as our neighbor, as our relative, as family and say, OK, how would I treat that person? Um, and, 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 and listen, some things aren't practical. I can't have 50,000 people live in my house, but let me figure something out. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and um, or if I go to prison and I have someone cursing me out, like I went to a prison, had a white supremacist cursing me out, uh, a kid calling me the N word, yelling, screaming, get the F out of my cell. Right. OK. 
I get that. But you know what, though? That kid was fed something. He's saying that for a reason. His dad beat him. He's a white supremacist. So he had a lot of bad experience. Now I get that. I mean, I get I got it at the time. Mm -hmm. I said, cool, I'll leave. I'm going to come back because I know your pain is screaming. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and we had a great conversation, a great prayer. But the point was, he's a human being that was hurt Mm -hmm. and his pain was yelling at me. So I had to look at him as if I was in his position, what, how do I do I have compassion for his pain and his hurt? Yes. Or I could just say he did something wrong and that's it. So if we can put value on what we have in common, mm-hmm. we would treat people and see people very different. Mm. Awesome. Um, all right. I want to talk about chapter seven, what I think is the most important part of the book. And if you can walk us through, there was um, a uh, Alfred Alongo. He was killed by a San Diego police officer, September 27th, oh, yeah. yep. uh, September 27th, 2016. Walk us through from the moment you had, there was a press conference uh, on a, maybe a Tuesday to that Sunday, because this chapter and everything that transpired that week is, in my opinion, the most important part of the book and the birth of the third option that I really want you to go into detail if you can. Yeah, um, the, the, it was a press conference, I believe, the same night and um, with the chief. And I went there to pray with the chief. And then after the, the press conference, we encouraged the chief to go outside and address the crowd. There was about 100 people outside, very upset, very mad. And so we went outside, the three of us, and he was speaking to them. And someone cursed at me. And they said, you know, blank, the rock church, blank, past the miles. Mm-hmm. Two different incidences over about a minute. And I'm like, what are you yelling at me for? <laughs> right? So that really bothered me. It hurt me. Um, uh, and all week. And then the next day I had a pastor's meeting. And we had, you know, 30 pastors and probably 10 nationalities. Right? And we talked about the shooting. We talked about relationships to police. We talked about just what was going on and everybody had different experiences. Mm-hmm. And so I knew Sunday, which is my, my MO is to talk about stuff in church. Right? <laughs> so, you know, something happens in the culture and it's a big deal. We're going to talk about it. Matter of fact, uh, August 25th, 2019, shortly after this comes out, I'm going to interview a former white supremacist at church based because of the shooting just happened. A guy you write about in the book. There's Taz is going to yep. be there. Right. And so, so that's kind of my deal. You know, let's, let's talk about it. Let's Mm -hmm. not, let's not act like it's not real. So I decided to do a whole sermon based on how do I encourage my church? Because with the shooting, because every day that week, every day there were protests in San Diego, traffic was being stopped. People were marching down the street. It was on the news every single day. I was on the news almost every day. And I said, I got to say something mm-hmm. Sunday. So I, and, and, and because I talk a lot and can't shut up, I, I probably not going to say five minutes. I got to say, you know, 30 minutes. So we did a sermon and we had five chairs around, around the table. One chair represented the pe- the, the police officer. Mm-hmm. And then another chair represented the, all the people in the church who felt like the shooting was justified because there was a video. Mm-hmm. So we all saw from the, uh, someone took a video from their phone. So I said, everybody who this chair at the table represents all the people who agree with the shooting, that it was lawful. This chair represents all the people who don't agree and believe it was unlawful. This other chair represents 
uh, the devil that says you have to pick a side. You have to pick one of those two. Mm -hmm. You have to either agree or disagree with the shooting. And those were the two options mm -hmm. that everybody had. But then there was a fifth chair, and that was the chair of God's chair. Mm -hmm. And God said there's a third option. And, and it was challenging the people. What do you feel towards the people who disagree with you? Mm. You know, we're not going to solve this, but really what's in your heart. So anyway, I, I talked about that, preached about it. And then at the end, we had people come for prayer and I'm shaking all the people's hands, which I do every Sunday. And this guy shakes my hand and he won't let go. And he pulls me towards him and says, I'm the guy who yelled at you the other night. Mm. <laughs> I'm the guy who cursed you. I'm the guy who cursed you. And your church. <laughs> and your church, right. And, and, and so I bring him in the back and he's got his mom on him. He's a you know, 20-something-year-old kid, and, and African-American kid. And he got his mom. His mom's like, what's going on? And he said, Mom, I said something disrespectful to Pastor Miles. And she starts yelling at him. And then he says what he said. And he said, I didn't think you... I didn't think you understood and cared because mm -hmm. all these shootings were happening and you weren't saying anything. And his mother says, what are you saying? Pastor Miles has been saying stuff every time there was a shooting. He had pictures on stage. You just weren't at church. <laughs> you know, so he, mm -hmm. um, it was, but it was really good because he said, even the message I talked about, the third option was encouraging to him. Um, and, and so it was, it was affirming, but that was, a, that was a hard week because it was just, it was just hard to mm -hmm. see so much division in our city. Mm -hmm. you know? My favorite part of the book is actually from this chapter, page 89, you say, even though we look at a situation and label it as being about race, it's really more of a matter of respect and honor or lack thereof. When people don't honor each other's perspectives or experience or give them an opportunity to be heard and validated, it hurts. And you say, I thank the young man for coming forward, which was a huge step toward healing his heart and mind. We experienced mutual honor and respect. This didn't mean the larger societal problem was fixed, but before society can be healed, the individual conflict within our hearts must be healed. It comes back for me to be the change that we want to see in the world. It starts with each of us in the mirror every day. And that's why this paragraph sticks out more than any other in the whole book. You know, you know, one, I have a couple of chapters on blind spots and a blind spot is not knowing what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And all of us have blind spots. We think we know mm -hmm. ourselves, and we think we know other people. Um, people can be racially offensive and not necessarily be a racist. And I don't know that too many people would say they're racist, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they can't be racially offensive all the time. Mm -hmm. And, Often, if, if throughout my life, whenever I've pointed racially offensive things to people, they would say, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, which is code for, that's not racially offensive. And that's a very misconception because there are a lot of, you know, I'm sure really nice people that just have ignorant views, mm -hmm. wrong views of themselves and of other people mm -hmm. that are offensive. And they say things like, I don't, I like saying you don't see color. That's just ignorant. Mm. Of course you do. Because mm. the only time you say it is when you see color. Mm. White people don't say that to each other. About each other anyway. Yeah. They only say it about people of color. And so it's because you see it. And and of course you see it. God made it so you would see. And God gave you eyes to see it. You should honor it. That That's the place where honor comes in. Is that I see that you're white and I honor it. I value your culture and your heritage and, and your experience. 
period. Mm-hmm. If I see someone Asian, I value it. I want to learn about it. I want to respect it. I want to uh, learn from it. And so instead of saying, let me ignore it because I don't want to talk about it, that's not what, that's not what human is. Human is, let me, let me carry your burdens with you. Let me understand who you are. And so, but, you know, and people sometimes say that, I'm sure most of the time, well-meaning, but it's still offensive because when someone tells me they don't see color, what they're saying to me is that I'm not black. Mm. Well, I am. Mm. And what they're saying to me is I don't want to deal with your burden. I don't want to acknowledge your burden because you're just like me. Well, that's not true. I want to keep my head in the sand. Keep my head in the sand. Mm. And so um, it is offensive. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean they're racist necessarily, but it is racially offensive. Mm-hmm. So that means let's, let's deal with it. Because if you if you honor my similarity, you don't want me to be hurt, just like you don't want to be hurt. Yeah. So don't you know respect my uh, request to be acknowledged. One of the things I love about what you did in the book is you had um, some people that work with you. You did an experiment called "Walk in My Shoes." Yeah, and one of my field trip, field trip, yeah, <laughs> field trip. And one of my favorites was, and I think I'm impartial towards Jeremy because he's from the Midwest and I'm yeah. from the Midwest. So I really particularly love, love Jeremy's story, his field trip. Um, uh, and I'll go back to the blind spot. If you are right-handed, the world was made for right-handed people. You know, the desk at school was for mm-hmm. right-handed people. If you're right-handed, you can get golf clubs in any golf shop. You can get a catcher's mitt and you can sport a good store. But if you're left-handed, the, the desk at school didn't support your elbow. Mm-hmm. You It's very difficult to get all the golf clubs left-handed. Mm-hmm. And it's almost impossible to get a left-handed catcher's mitt. You shake right-handed, not left-handed. So if you're left-handed, and I'm left-handed, you always had to do a little extra step. Well, if you're right-handed, you don't even know that. And it doesn't mean that you don't like left-handed people, but it does mean you have an advantage. Mm-hmm. And it's called right privilege. It's the privilege of having society bend and being designed for someone like you. And so there are a lot of people who have that privilege, don't even realize they have it. And so when the left-handed person says, I can't find golf clubs, you think they're making it up because you found one really quick. And so I was explaining to someone, they said, oh, you just need to get over it. And I said, look, and this person was white. I said, you need to go someplace where you're the only white person. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be church, it could be a school, it could be whatever. And the first two people I asked said, no, they were scared. And so I said, so you're telling me that you are, you're scared to own, to be the only white person. Now, now translate this. You have a choice to be able to do that. You can live your whole life and never have to be in that situation. Think about the people of color who deal with that every single day. So it, it was Jeremy happened to take the challenge and go to a black barbershop and all the things going through his head, driving there. And when he got there, the sign said all are welcome, which made him feel, which made him feel um, a little at ease. Think about it. Going into a, a, a barbershop thinking, I, am I going to be welcome and sitting there? Imagine dealing with that every day. Like I told you before we started, I actually did imagine that and I got a little uneasy. Yeah. And so that's me being vulnerable and honest that I'm in the work. Correct. And so when you, when you, for all the people listening, next time you're in a restaurant, school, office, just look around Mm -hmm. and ask yourself, what percentage of the people look like you? And, and flip it, flip it. So if it's 90% of people look like you, flip it where 90% of people don't look like you Mm -hmm. and you're the 10%. 
and then flip it back and say, okay, now if I see a, a person over there that is the 10% or the 1%, maybe I need to realize, man, how do they feel? And how can I make them feel comfortable? Because if I'm going to live my life to avoid being the minority, one, what does that say about you? And what does that say about your belief about the minority? You think they're going to do something? And so that, that uncovers a lot of stuff that we have in our heart that we may not be acknowledging and we don't want to acknowledge, but it doesn't mean it's not there. And so Jeremy went to a barbershop and uh, he wrote, there's three people in the book that, uh, three or four people that went to a place uh, another lady went to a church and she went to a black church and she was nervous the whole time. Think about it. And matter of fact, the first guy that I asked to do it, he said, I wouldn't, and, and this is in the book as well, yeah. I wouldn't even go to a black church. I would feel like I want to leave right away. Think about that. Think about that. I wouldn't even go to a church. And and so these are very respectable people that you would think, oh, hey, he's a great guy, da, 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 but yet he wouldn't go to a black church because he's scared that the black people in the church are going to do what? Mm. I mean, that, that, what, how insulting is that to the black people in the church and black people in general? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we're animals. Like <laughs> you see a white guy, I'm going to do something to you. And so that, and, and there may be a lot of you right now going, man, that's me. Well, check it out. You need to pray about something because that says something about your background, your views, your education, whatever it is. I don't know where, where it comes from, but that's what people of color deal with every day. We go places where we are always that. And so when we say we can't get a job, when we say someone treat us bad, you, you blow it off because it's not new experience. But if you were in the flip side, you would you probably would anticipate that mm -hmm. and even see it when it's not there. And it, and it ties into fear. Yeah. And, and in the book, you, you articulate so well, you know, f false evidence appearing real, but then you break it out. Fear, face the facts, get educated about the other, be accountable to affirm one another and build relationships, recognizing the image of God in everyone. Exactly. I mean, I, I guarantee you, you know, and this goes back to one of the, there's a, there's a, there's a chapter on having conversations. You know, you're having a race conversation every time you talk to somebody, even if that someone looks exactly like you. Because if you're white and you're having a conversation with a white person, your idea of what white people are like is being affirmed mm -hmm. or challenged. And so no matter who you talk to, you're having a race conversation because you know who you're talking to. Um, but so if you're, if you're whatever you are, every time you talk to someone who's different than you or like you, but definitely different, you're having a race conversation because your beliefs and perceptions are being challenged or reinforced. And... And I would encourage you to have as many conversations with people who are different and lean into the conversation. Ask people about their family, their pain, their hurt, and all the things you deal with, mm -hmm. their career, their desires, and look them in the eye and tell yourself, this person is made in the image of God just like you. No better, no worse. They have the same desires that you have. And, and you'll start to realize, wow, people are really just like me. Mm -hmm. They're not a lot different. I was I was at a golf course once, and this white kid from Iowa, believe it or not, picked me up in the golf course, in the golf club, a, a, a cart. And I got in the golf cart, and he was a cool kid, 20-something years old. You know, we were just joking. And I said, by the way, what's your name? And just, I wish you imagine a white kid from Iowa, right? And he goes, my name is DeAndre, 
Right. <laughs> and I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> hold on. And, and now you mean, isn't that racial that you thought that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I never met a kid, white kid named DeAndre. <laughs> so I said, where did your parents get that name? Not only, not only are you white, but you're from Iowa. I mean, so it's like, there's not that, as many black kids in Iowa than, you know, say Manhattan, right? Yep. And we're, I'm from New York, so Long Island. So he, but it was, it was so much fun. He said, my, my parents just like that name. And, and, you know, I would love to talk to them. Like, who'd they, who'd they meet somebody? But, you know, that heat, that expanded. Cause I, you know, I, I had a, 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 a range of names for white kids from Iowa, right? And DeAndre ain't in that list. Yeah, Andrew Jeremy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Andrew Jeremy. Exactly, exactly. Except Billy Bob, right? <laughs> Not DeAndre. So, but that, what, what, what that did was go, okay, okay. And, and, and here's what it did. As soon as he said his name, I imposed, this is also very interesting. I automatically attached the coolness of the name to him. He was all of a sudden cool. Because, the, the, you know, DeAndre, when I think of DeAndre, I have in my mind all the DeAndres I know. Yeah. So I put all that on him. And, all of a sudden, and he was a pretty cool kid too, right? He always had the swag of a DeAndre. But that name... It, it, it brought with it characteristics. If you call someone stupid, you apply to them everything you know is stupid. And that's why it's so critical to give people honoring names, like my brother, right? I call, hey, what's up, my brother? All of a sudden, we're boys, right? We're hugging. I'm not, I'm st- I can't call you my brother and not want to hug you. I'm not going to give you a high five, right? And so um, uh, uh, labels are very important and having conversations with people are very important. I love it. All right, so people listening, uh, obviously, getting getting the book. This is a solution. Go to Amazon. Go to Amazon. Amazon. I got mine at Barnes and Noble. I was the, I got the last book in NCS at Barnes and Noble. So hopefully they reordered. I would just go online. It might be easier. But uh, Pastor Miles, what can people do today to change the dialogue to start honoring each other and themselves? People who are listening at home, how do we get started? Yeah. Uh, number one, talk to people who are different than you and listen, um, put the label neighbor, brother, sister, friend, honorable labels mm-hmm. on them. Even when you see someone, you know, uh, on the news that you think has nothing to do with me. When I see white supremacists, those white supremacists are my neighbors. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with them. They're still my neighbor, right? I still got to pray for them. I still got to, I, I still got to, um, Love them in the sense of look, you know how you look at me has nothing to do with how I'm gonna look at you, mm. right? Uh, number two, ask the people in your life who are of different ethnicity. By the way, there's only one race. There's no races. There's only one race, the human race. Different races is a is a made up idea. So biologically, there's only one race. Mm. That's a fact. So we just made up that idea of different races. There's no such thing. But there are different ethnicities, right? And so find someone of a different ethnicity or a different socioeconomic uh, level. You may be rich white and you look down on poor and vice versa, right? Mm -hmm. Or or rich black and you look down on poor black, right? But find someone who's different, specifically ethnicity, and ask, um, uh, is there anything I say or do racially offensive that I don't know about? Because if they're in your life and they know it, they're not really going to say. They don't want to start a big deal. They just deal with it. Especially 
people of color are so used to it. We just kind of, whatever, you know. Um, but ask them, say, is there anything I say? I, I, I don't want to be blind to my offensive comments. Um, I mean, one lady, my sister was a um, interior, she does interior design, and she was doing interior design with somebody, and the lady called her a negress, right? It was just this was old, racially, race, racist white lady. She probably don't even, mm -hmm. she probably didn't think nothing of it. I don't know her, so I can't really say. Mm -hmm. But she just blurred out like it's no big deal. And, you know, she said that to my sister's face. Imagine what she says behind mm. people's back, right? But you, you have people in your life who say stuff, and and even if they're old and, and they've been doing it all their life, it doesn't excuse it. Mm. Just say, hey, look, just ask, am I offensive? Anything I say is offensive. And by the way, white people are prejudiced, black people are prejudiced, Hispanics are prejudiced. It is not, no one has a call to market on no being racist. <laughs> right? It's, we all do it. And, and, and we all do it. Um, and, and there's, there are differences in culture, especially in our culture, because of slavery and how blacks have always been held down from day one. We don't know anything different. And so there is a difference in it um, and a difference in origin. But um, uh, and, and there is resentment that is justified. Right. Mm -hmm. that, uh, and, and, but at the same time. Um, we all can be, uh, and, and I write about, we can be racist against ourselves called internalized racism where, and, and internalized racism is when you have been told um, that you're less than and you believe it. And mm. so you start to hate your own, mm. which is really horrible. Um, but I, I would ask people, you know, am I, am I racially offensive? And then I would, and I would put the label neighbor on everybody. That you see, neighbor, brother, sister. Yeah, yeah, and and you know when you see people on listen, labeling people is is a step of saying we're equal. That's a hard thing to do for some people because we don't want to think those people are equal to me, and that's a pride thing. But if you don't know those people then it's really ignorant. If you've heard about those people or someone told you, or you had one, two, ten experiences and that's it, that's not a lot of information. Also, another way people, for me, I've been to your church. I've been to The Rock and we get like, uh, you have 25,000 people every month. You have five campuses, 13 microsites. I've been in the one in Point Loma. The music is amazing. It's like the United Nations because it's a, <laughs> it's a microcosm, the church of the society of you know, the races, sexes, <laughs> the socioeconomic backgrounds. And so that's why to see people of all walks of life, it's really cool. And so I recommend people going to your church as well, getting the book. A um, couple last things as we wrap up. I have a couple friends that go to The Rock. They wanted me to ask you, what do you like to do for fun? <laughs> yeah. First I say, let me say sdrock.com. sdrock.com. I'll put this in the show notes too. Yeah. And at Miles McPherson, you can follow me. You do all that stuff. Uh, what I do for fun, I work out. I hang out with my wife. We, we uh, love um, watching movies and just sitting home. Uh, um, I, I love ideas. I love having brainstorm sessions about ministry stuff, business stuff, just ideas. I mean, sometimes I'll meet somebody random that they want to sell toilet paper. I'm like, okay, let's think of some ideas, right? So I just love brainstorming on stuff. And um, 
but I, I love what I do. You know, I love helping people. I love, I mean, how long we've we been sitting here? 45 minutes. Right. And it's like, we, I can just do this all day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I love talking about solutions and help mm. people come together and, and, um, uh, but working out, I love working. Out. I started working out harder in the last month and every day I can wring my shirt out of sweat. I love that. I love mm-hmm. getting to a point where I can't breathe and I just got to lay on the ground. And then what kind of work out? Well, um, right now I'm, I'm semi training to run track. I hope to, I hope, I hope, I hope, it's a hope to, to compete in track, uh, maybe in six months from now. So I'm, I'm just beginning to get my core, my cardio. So it's a lot of cardio and core work. Um, and you know, time 30 seconds, boom, 30 seconds off, 30 seconds, boom, 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 for about an hour, hour and a half. And, and, um, so it's a, it's a lot of different type of exercises, very fast, compact, and it kills me, but I love it. I love it. I, I, I literally, I grow up every after every workout, I feel like more of a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen, I've been, I've been through, you know, when I was a young guy, I worked out so many years playing football, you know, I got, you know, what, 25, 15 years I'm from t- the age of 10 to the age of 25. And then I kept working out, but those were the intense years. And I just missed that. You know, I missed that. I miss being able to, I miss being at the point where I could barely breathe mm. and stand up, you know, from being so tired. Mm. And so I'm getting back at that again. And it's so good. Mm. You mentioned your wife, Debbie. I had the pleasure of meeting Debbie. I've uh, connected with her a few different times now. Uh, she is an angel. Yeah. She's definitely the best looking in your family. Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> and uh, talk to me about, talk to us about the importance of her and like, you know, your Instagram videos, you guys are always having fun. You're yeah. playing, you're, you're joking. Talk about that relationship and how much she needs to you. And yeah. you're doing. So I'm a personality. I go 24 hours. I can work. I'm a workaholic. I love working. Um, I love people. I love traveling. My wife doesn't like being around a lot of people. She doesn't like traveling and she is not a workaholic. She's a homebody mm. and she's, you know, about family, our kids. We have three kids in their thirties and grandson. And, and so we're opposite almost in every way. So she helps me stay grounded. And, and uh, you know, whenever we meet couples, the woman in the couples always like me and the guy is always like her. <laughs> right. So I, every time I, it always happens this way. We, I meet a couple and, we, we hang out and the couple wants, the, the woman always wants to talk real fast with me and, uh, and the guy just sits here and listens like her. And my wife always says, you should marry someone like that. And I said, you know what? If I did, I would be dead because <laughs> I would never stop. <laughs> <laughs> we would wear each other into the ground. <laughs> so she just, because she, she watches me have all this fun. Like, well, I'm talking, because sometimes I come home. From church, and I'll be all excited. I have adrenaline and a big altar call, and, and I'm like, "This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened." And she stands there and listens to me. And then when I'm done, she goes, "Okay, turn the lights off. Go to bed." <laughs> Take the garbage out. That's it. And I'm like, "That's it." <laughs> so she, she, you know, and so she puts everything in perspective. Like that's great, but the garbage's got to go. <laughs> I actually watched. I actually saw that video a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, took the garbage out. Exactly, exactly. She, she, she still has me trained. She just puts the garbage out. She takes the garbage out of the out of the out of the bag and puts it on the floor. Like, <laughs> now I gotta take it out of the house. Yeah, and so 
and and so she keeps me, you know, everything in perspective. Mm. And we met in college uh, when in 1980, so almost 40 years ago. Uh, it'll be 40 years next year. Mm. Um, and you know, we went through a hard time for the first two years because I was a knucklehead. Mm. And then I got saved, and, and then we got married, and now it's been it. So, yep. Awesome. Well, um, so at Miles McPherson, uh, at sdrock.com. Also, there's... Uh, well, sdrock.com, yes. Yeah. So where we can find you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, I love the daily uh, inspirational Miles a Minute. Yeah, yeah Miles that, a Minute. Yeah, there's, that's an app. So you can download Miles a Minute, yeah. and it's a daily inspirational one-minute video that uh, you got to check out. Um, anything else we can talk about? Anything else that you want to say to the audience before we go? Yeah, you know, they can make a video. We, we had a thing called the um, um, Third Option Challenge. And we wanted people to make videos of someone who looks different than them and say, here's what I love about this person in a minute or less, and hashtag Third Option Challenge. People need to see uh, who that is more love than hate. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's more people getting along that don't and give people courage to say it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the things that the Taz is going to talk about, the former white supremacist, is that how many people are supporters of the white supremacist violence, but undercover. You know, they're just support. They're called supporters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the white supremacists might do something and, you know, violently. And then there's a bunch of people who. They don't have the tattoos, but they're like, yes, mm -hmm. right. So we need to we need to we need to show, you know, who do you, where's your heart really at? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think in the book I talk about how there's such a high percentage of whites who have never had a black person in their house, and blacks who've never had a white person in their house. And you know, we we just we tolerate each other, and and I don't even like that term. Mm -hmm. We need to love each other, yeah. right? You know, I know we have a culture that's built on tolerance and we need to have a culture built on love and honor. So <clears throat> I would I would say make that video one minute. Here, my name is so-and-so. Here's what I love about Andrew. And he's so enthusiastic. He's, so, he's such a go-getter, friendly and up, up, outgoing and, and let people see that. You know, hashtag the third option challenge. All right, we'll do. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And we'll do that after we get done here. We'll do a quick, quick video. Let's do it. We'll be the change that we want to see in the world. Yeah. Pastor Miles, I just want to thank you again. The book, guys, for everybody listening, The Third Option, Hope for a Racially Divided Nation. Please get it out. Forward by Drew Brees. <laughs> and uh, I read it twice. So, um, like I said, it's it's solution-based. Um, Pastor Miles is one of the few talking about solutions, not pointing the finger. So, please check it out. Uh, Pastor Miles, I just want to honor you and acknowledge you again for all the work that you do. I want to uh, acknowledge you for your leadership in the community. The, the podcast is called Positive Impact. It's really important that to amplify the message of people who are making a positive impact. You're doing that. You've been doing it for a long time. I just want to acknowledge the work that you do, your leadership, your courage, your love, your heart. Um, it just, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for being here and uh, sharing some time with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. God, God bless you. All right. All right, guys. Thank you.